greatest privileges of my life as a pastor is to be able to, to witness and to participate in baptisms. I just never get tired of that. Uh, what an exciting deal to see people take that step of obedience in their life. And last weekend uh, in Skagit, uh, you had a couple people get baptized and in Belize, a dozen people get baptized. And here in all of our services all weekend long, we're having people get baptized. Last night, I had the privilege of baptizing a little girl named Jaden. And after the service, she was talking to her mom and was asking her mom about when she got baptized. And this little girl said, well, mommy, who, who baptized you? And she said, well, Pastor Bob did. And she said, how old is he? <laughs> uh, old enough to keep baptizing. And Brett, the largest man I've ever baptized today. I mean, this is such a, such a wonderful time uh, to be able to celebrate what God is doing. Yeah, I remember the first time I saw on television at the Johnsonville Cornhole Tournament. And I thought, this is a thing, like on TV, I mean, these people are sponsored. They're like the professionals. And about a month and a half ago, I was at my mom's house and I was surfing through their television and I, and I landed on ESPN, ESPN, the Ocho, and there were adults playing kickball on TV. Kickball. And, and I don't know if you've seen this one, but, and I don't even remember where I, uh, which channel it was, but they were playing Ultimate Tag. And I'm thinking, who sits and watches this stuff on TV? But these childhood games that, that, that are on, on television, I mean, we, we played these games growing up. I mean, tag, you know, tag, there, there's different kinds of tags. Obviously, there's freeze tag and tunnel tag and flashlight tag, and, and someone's it. And if you get touched, you're either it or you're out. And, and usually with tag, there was a base, right, where if you could get that base, you were safe, whether it was something you had to touch or a place where you had to be. And they're doing this on television, like leagues and professional taggers or, or what have you. And, I mean, why not do that with hide-and-seek? You know, I mean, could there be professional hide and Here's the deal with hide-and-seek. And tell me if I'm wrong. If you're a good hider in hide-and-seek, it's really a boring game. Because you hide really, really well, and then you just have to sit there until someone screams out that Scandinavian bovine liberation line about Ollie and Ollie and oxen are free or whatever that's about. And, and then we had this kind of this hybrid of, of hide-and-seek and tag where it was called kick the can. Now, I don't know if you played that. It's kind of the same kind of a deal. You hide, but then you run. And, then you and in all these games, there's an it that you're either hiding from or you're running from. And the idea is to get somewhere where there's safety. And I want to propose today that some of the elements and rules of those childhood games find their roots to 3,500 3, years ago into the civic laws of the Pentateuch that Yahweh spoke to Moses and were implemented by Joshua. Are you curious? Well, that's what we're going to go with today. And today we continue on in our series with Joshua. And the series, as I've said, is a series about lessons from the life and times of Joshua, not walking through the book of Joshua necessarily. Up to last week, we were about chapter 10. There's a third of the book, chapters 13 through 19, where there's all these lists of names and cities and boundary markers and uh, we're going to just skip over all that. You're, you're welcome. But before we get to the, the climactic and dramatic conclusion of this series next week, which don't miss next week, I want us to stop in Joshua chapter 20. And I cannot tell you how excited I am to preach this out of Joshua chapter 20. When we were putting this series together back in the late summer, I kept thinking, I can't wait to preach this one. And in Joshua chapter 20, and you can turn there, it'll take us a minute to get there. And it, by a minute, I mean more than 60 seconds. Um, in Joshua chapter 20, there's 
a detail about life in Israel that most people overlook. In fact, I would imagine most of you are unaware and really, quite frankly, just don't care about this. And my hope is that by the end of our time together today, minimally on the bottom, that you would at least say, oh, that's pretty interesting. And that for some of you, you might even take it to the level of saying, that is fascinating. And my prayer is that you'll hang with me long enough to where at the end you see how all of this stuff that's at least hopefully interesting and fascinating actually applies to my life, your life, and our lives collectively. And in addition to all that, you can see how the roots to hide and seek and tag go clear back to Joshua chapter 20. Last night, my mom watches Saturday night online every week. And she always texts me. It's an encouraging text every week, whether the sermon was good or not. It's an encouraging text. Her text last night was, great sermon, quite a journey to get there, though. <laughs> do you want to go on a journey this morning? <laughs> yes, one of you do. I hope you're well caffeinated because it's going to be a bit of a journey, a lot of backstory, a lot of details, a lot of kind of going in a lot of different parts that hopefully all weave together at the end. So let's jump into a little backstory. Let's go on this journey. You got to go back to Genesis chapter 49 to start this. Jacob, who's also known as Israel, he has 12 sons who would become roughly the 12 tribes. Jacob is coming to the end of his life and they're in Egypt. You know, Joseph has brought them all there and everything is good at that point. They're not slaves yet. It's all good. Jacob is preparing to die and he brings his 12 sons together and a couple grandsons, Joseph's grandsons, Ephraim and Manasseh. But he brings them together and he begins to bless his sons. He begins to speak blessings on them, begins to kind of proclaim their future. And what's interesting is when he gets to Simeon and Levi, and Levi is one that's of most interest for our sermon today, but Simeon and Levi, he says something to them that's not a blessing necessarily. And apparently, uh, <laughs> Simeon and Levi, these brothers, were probably like kind of partners in crime. They're getting in trouble together. They were, they were a little bit uh, barbaric. And, and so Jacob says to them, listen, this is the case. Because of your anger and because you're always wielding the sword, and he says and specifically to Levi, Levi, you and your people will always be scattered amongst Israel. Hold on to that. You will always be scattered. Your, your clan, your family, your tribe will always be scattered amongst Israel. So because of their actions, because of their attitude, there was a consequence that, that they would not be like a tight-knit group in one area. They would always be scattered. Fast forward 400 years later. In Exodus chapter 32, Moses and Joshua come down off of Mount Sinai with the tablets. They hear all the ruckus going on in the camp, and there's the golden calf experience. At that point, Moses gets a little upset, but he draws a line in the sand and says, listen, if you're going to do that, are you going to do this? And the Levites side with Yahweh and Moses, and again, they wield their swords. But because of that, Moses proclaims to the Levites, from now on, you will be set apart to the Lord. You will be set apart for the Lord's purposes. So here, these group, this group that their great, 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 great grandfather, Jacob says, you're always going to be scattered. There's a consequence. There's basically a curse on your life. Now Moses comes and says, you're going to be set apart. Holy is the word, holy unto the Lord for his purposes. It's a benefit. It's a blessing because of that. And so here you have this tribe where there's this curse and this blessing, this consequence and this reward. They're going to be scattered, and yet they're going to be God's uh, instrument and, and tool and, and um, people for the Israelites. 
So then you get to Joshua 13 through 19. That's where I said there's this whole list of names that you can't pronounce, cities that you'll never visit, that are hard to understand, all of these barriers, all these. Listen, if you have a problem sleeping tonight, read Joshua 13 through 19. God's word can help you with insomnia. There's all of these, just these lists and lists. And what's happening here is that Joshua is dividing up the land. They've gone into the promised land, and now each of the tribes are getting sections of land. Not just a town, not just an area. They're getting complete sections of land, and he's spelling out where this is. Let me, let me illustrate it this way. Because east and west of the Jordan would be pretty similar to the size of Washington. And now in Washington, we have, I think it's 39 counties. But what Joshua's doing is he's dividing up basically the same amount of, of territory into 12, as you could call them, counties, 12 tribal areas. So if we were a tribe, maybe he would say, for you, you get this land, Whatcom County, Skagit County, Snohomish County. That's our area. That's, that's ours now. And so he divides us up amongst the 12. So all the 12 tribes, uh, with the half-tribes of Manasseh and Ephraim, Joseph's sons, all the 12 tribes get land and they're excited. All the 12 tribes, that is, except the Levites. They don't get land. They had been, it had been proclaimed in Genesis chapter 49. They will be scattered. And Moses follows up with this. In Joshua 13, 33, it says, but to the tribe of Levi... Moses had given no inheritance, no inheritance of land. The Lord, the God of Israel, is their inheritance as he promised them. Now, there's the curse. They don't get a piece of land, but there's this blessing. Yahweh himself is their inheritance. What could be better than that? But I've got to believe, and I've got to just wonder, if the Levites are going, yeah, that's great, but we don't get land. I mean, think about it this way. Christmas morning, all your siblings are getting Legos and skateboards and bikes, and you open up and you get U.S. savings bonds. <laughs> now, the truth is, your U.S. savings bonds are worth way more than the Legos and the, and the skateboard and the bike. And long after the Legos have been lost and the bike's tires are flat and the skateboard is outdated, you're, you've got the U.S. savings bond and you can buy a car, down payment on a house, or your education. It's a much better gift. But there's a party who's like, we wanted toys. And I just wonder if the Levites are going, yeah, we're, thanks, we're grateful. And where are they supposed to live? Everyone else has land now. Where are they supposed to live? Are they supposed to just be nomads? Are they supposed to just kind of couch surf around a little van by the river? Where are they supposed to live? Well, there was a provision made for that as well. Numbers chapter 35, verse 1 and 2, On the plains of Moab by the Jordan across from Jericho, the Lord said to Moses, Command the Israelites to give the Levites towns to live in from the inheritance the Israelites will possess and give them pasture lands around those towns. So all these other tribes, they get their inheritance. They get their land. And he says, I want you to have each of them share with their brothers. I want you to have them give them some towns, not massive areas, just towns. And it roughly equates to about four towns for every tribe. Every tribe is going to give four of their towns to the Levites to live in. So again, if we were a tribe and we have Whatcom County, Skagit County, and Snohomish County, and we're instructed four towns need to be given to the Levites. We say, okay, well, let's think. Lake Stevens, that's a nice little place. They would love that up on the hill. LeConnor's cute. Let's give them LeConnor. Lyman, 
Um, but they're the priestly tribe, so we must give them Linden. And so we give them these, these four towns. So they've got these four towns. Now we go on, but, but there they are living in, in these four towns, and they have all of that. Numbers 35, verse 7, it says, in all, you must give the Levites 48 towns. Hold that one if you want to do really well on a quiz here in a minute. 48 towns together with their pasture lands. So it kind of works out to basically the 12 tribes are each giving four towns. So there's 48 towns that are given to the Levites. Now this is brilliant. On the one hand, it's the result, the consequences of a curse to Levi that your people are going to be scattered. But think about this. The Levites are working for Yahweh's purposes. They're the ones that are doing the sacrifices. They're the ones that are teaching the laws. They're the ones that are giving spiritual direction. And they're not all consolidated in one area. This is beautiful. Because now they're spread throughout the entire land. And so what you see is what was originally a curse, God in his divine sovereign way turns it around to fulfill his purposes. And now throughout the land, the Levites are this divine representation and saturation throughout the land. One of the commentaries I read said, because of the placement of the 48 towns in Israel, you were never more than 10 miles away from a Levitical town. So if you needed a sacrifice, if you needed spiritual direction, if you needed clarification on a law, you could go to one of these towns. It's a beautiful thing. Now, hold that. That's one little piece. Are are you still with me? Good, good, good. Okay. So there's this law, the law that's given, the, the Pentateuch, the law of Moses, and people don't have copies of it. But the Levites are in charge of of being able to teach this and proclaim this. So this is wonderful because you can go and and hear this. And there's a lot of different laws. And some of the laws are very practical. Remember, these people, they've never had to live in civilizations before. For 400 years, they were slaves in Egypt. And they just did what they were told. For the last 40 years in the wilderness, they were out there. But Moses told them what to do. And for the last five years, as they've gone into the, to, to the promised land, they've got this mission, we're going to take over this land. Now they're going to settle down. Now they've got to understand, how do we live? How do we operate? How do we be as a society? And on many of the laws, the Levitical laws even, were about how do you, how do you live together? How do you exist? And one of the laws... Um, we'll talk about was, was dealing with conflict. Because while they were God's people, they're still families. And any of you who've had children know that there can be conflict in families at times. Sometimes there'd be disagreements. Sometimes there'd be arguments. Sometimes there might even be fights. And thus would be the case with Israelites in their families, in their clans, in their tribes, in their nation. And God had laid out some laws that this is how you operate. So when things got a little bit heated and maybe even physical, there was one specific law that was given. Part of this you're familiar with because Jesus quotes portion of it in the Sermon on the Mount. It goes this way, Exodus 21, 23 through 25. But if there's serious injury, you know, this, this conflict, you are to take life for life. Hold on to that. We're going to come back to that. Eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, bruise for bruise. Some of you are saying, cool. God's word lets us get even. I mean, he's, he's outlining that we should pay people back. Oh, no, 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 no. That's not it at all. What he's doing here is not saying, hey, go out and get even. What he's doing here is, is setting out, which we find even in our judicial system today, that the punishment ought to be congruent with the crime. So that if there was a lesser, pu- lesser crime, it shouldn't be hit with this greater punishment. 
that there wouldn't be cruel and unusual. You bruise me, I'm going to gouge out your eye. No, 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 you bruise, there's a bruise. It's, it's, it's called lex talionis is the word for this. And the whole idea was to prevent retribution from becoming retaliation. And again, if you have kids, you know how this goes. Starts with a touch, then it's a pinch, then it's a punch, then it's a, I mean, it just kind of keeps escalating and spiraling out of control. And so this is, is put into place so that that will not happen. Now, part of it, as I told you to hold on to, was this life for life. And if we had time, this is a rabbit trail I would love to go down to. This piece is put in there because God wants them to understand the absolute sanctity of life. That they have been created in the very image of God, and he has breathed life into them, and there is nothing more valuable than a life, so much so that if you take a life, it will cost you your life. He wants them to understand that. So in their culture, as, as we've talked about before, it was not an individualistic culture like we live in. They were seen as families, as clans, as tribes, as a nation. They were very much a communal, community type of an understanding, and there was an honor culture there. So what that meant is that if someone was killed, if, if one of their brothers or fathers or uh, uncles or someone was killed, that it was... It was their duty, their obligation, not only to avenge the blood of this one who is deceased, but to restore honor to the family. And so culturally, if there was a death, if there was a, someone that was killed, the family would choose someone, a close male relative, you know, eeny, meeny, miny, mo. This is, again, the games go back to this. And they would say, you're it. And now this one who is chosen as it, he has a duty not only to his fallen brother, but to his entire family to go and pursue, find the person who killed him and kill him as well. Robert Hubbard Jr. wrote this about this whole thing in their culture. By avenging the killing of a relative, the restorer, or literally the redeemer of blood, redeems the blood of the deceased and restores the family's sense of equilibrium, wholeness, and well-being. This was their culture. This was their custom. So someone dies, the family chooses an it, and it then becomes kind of like Dog the Bounty Hunter. Jobs to go out, find out who this is, and stop them. All right. What I'm getting ready to tell you, I want to just say right up front, I am not an attorney. Do not take this as legal counsel. <laughs> if there's a death in our culture, in our society, in our system, it can be equated as different things. First degree, second degree, voluntary, involuntary, manslaughter, these kind of things. And there's a difference between those. A first-degree murder is, idea, is roughly this idea of there was intent to murder, and it was premeditated. You had thought about it in advance. You had planned it out in advance. You carried it out, and that's first-degree. Second-degree murder is different. Second-degree murder is there was intent to harm and even kill, but it wasn't thought through. It wasn't planned out. It, it wasn't all, you know kind of design. For instance, if I went home today and realized someone had broken into my house and there they stood with the last box of Girl Scout Samoa cookies eating them and I happen to have a lightsaber, they're gone. Now there's an intent because that, that is punishable by death in my household. But it wasn't thought through. I didn't plan this out for a year. And then there's this whole thing of manslaughter, an involuntary manslaughter where it was an accident. It was a mistake. There, there was not an intent for this. It, it, it happened. It was, it was inadvertent. It was, it was unfortunate. And in our system, 
There's different penalties that go with each of these degrees of, of a loss of life. But it appears here in the, the system with, with the Israelites that it's one size fits all. Someone dies, someone else has to die. And you might say, well, then what about if there was an accident? What if it was involuntary? That doesn't seem fair. Oh, I'm so glad that you asked because there was provision for that as well. Numbers chapter 30, are you still with me? Yeah. 35 verse 6. Six of the towns you gave to the Levites. How many towns were given to the Levites? 48. Okay, of those 48, six of the towns you give to the Levites will be cities of refuge to which a person who has killed someone may flee. This is like going to home base. It's like where you get to where you're safe. They can't touch me here. They can't tag me here. So six of these cities, if you killed someone, you could flee to these cities, and as long as you were in that city, you were safe. They would not extradite you. The avenger of blood could not come and take you. They couldn't kill you. They couldn't touch you. It was safe. You were at the base. But only if this was an accident, if it was a mistake, if it was inadvertent. And to make sure that that was very clear, Moses spelled this out. In fact, he gives an example in Deuteronomy chapter 19. He says, for instance, a man may go into the forest with his neighbor to cut wood. And as he swings his axe to fell a tree, the head may fly off and hit his neighbor and kill him. That man may flee to one of these cities and save his life. Otherwise, the avenger of blood might pursue him in rage, overtake him if the distance is too great, and kill him even though he is not deserving of death, since he did it to his neighbor without malice a forethought. So there's this base he can run to. Now, I need to ask you for a lesson. Are you still with me? Yes. Now we go to Joshua chapter 20. All of that was to set up Joshua chapter 20. And this has all been set up with Moses and, and clear back to, to Jacob and Yahweh and all throughout. Joshua chapter 20. I just want to read verses 1 through 6 straight through. Then the Lord said to Joshua, Tell the Israelites to designate the cities of refuge as I instructed you through Moses, so that anyone who kills a person accidentally and unintentionally may flee there and find protection from the avenger of blood. When he flees to one of these cities, he is to stand at the entrance of the city gate and state his case before the elders of that city. Then they are to admit him into their city and give him a place to live with them. If the avenger of blood pursues him, they must not surrender the one accused because he killed his neighbor unintentionally and without malice of forethought. He is to stay in that city until he has stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who is serving at the time, then he may go back to his own home in the town which he fled. Again, you see even the roots of our judicial system. If he can make it to one of these cities of refuge, he's innocent until proven guilty. He can't be punished. He comes to the city and he states his case, and they welcome him in. And if he's found innocent, he stays there, and he's safe. So there were these six cities, and we've got a map of these six cities. Interesting thing, on the east side of the Jordan, Moses had already designated the three on the east side. Up there with Golan and with uh, Ramoth, and uh, in the bottom one there with Bezer. He, Moses had already established those three. On the west side of the Jordan River, they designate these other three. You know, there's, there's Hebron down in the south, and then there's Shechem in the middle, and then Kadesh way up at the top. And all of these are, are there. 
And you can imagine uh, as the placement, um, this is important because, uh, again, one of the commentaries I read, because of how they're spread out throughout the country, that if anyone needed to get to a city of refuge, it would probably be reachable within one day. That's why it said if, they, if the distance was too far, that they, if they ran, and, it, and they probably wouldn't stop for a lot of uh, sightseeing or rest stops. They would just like, I got to get to that city of refuge. And they could be there within one day, and they could find safety. They could be at this safe base. Now, think about this. If you're in a situation where there's a death accidentally, you're changing the wheel on your cart and your neighbor is helping you, and he's under the cart, and the cart's propped up, and he's greasing the bearings or whatever he's doing, and the donkey gets spooked or gets stung by a bee, and he kicks the cart, and the cart falls and collapses and crushes on the, to the chest of your neighbor, and he dies. It was an accident. It was not anyone's fault. You blame the donkey, but that doesn't work. Or he's up on the roof helping you, and he falls through the roof, and he hits his head on the table or on the mantle there, and he, and he dies. Or, or, or maybe he's, he's been up on a scaffolding helping you stucco the wall, and the scaffolding collapses and he's impaled, he dies. In our society, we'd say, it was an accident. Let's talk this through. Let's call the authorities. Not in that culture. Because the man had died, his family is obligated to avenge his blood. So the one who was a part of this says, I have to flee now. Like, I don't have time to say goodbye. I don't have time to pack. I don't have time. I've got to get out of here and I've got to get to a city of refuge now. And there's a running. And you can imagine running with this fear, looking over your shoulder. Are they coming after me? Am I going to make it? And then you come to a city of refuge. The relief, the joy, the gratitude, at least for now, I'm safe. And what I find interesting is when you look at all this, you begin to see the very heart of God. It's God's mercy and his justice. He's helping his people understand this is how you live together as a community. And yes, there's justice that must be done, but there's also mercy in this. We'll see this beautiful heart of God. And I don't know if this was intentional, and I don't want to stretch too far on this, but even these cities of refuge not only would there be this sense of relief and joy and gratitude because you finally see it, just their very names would bring this feeling of oh, relief. I mean, as, as you're running and you're afraid and you're not safe and, and you get to, to Kedish, this Kedish, the name itself means sanctuary. That the city is a sanctuary for you. And not only that, but looking over your shoulder all the time, carrying this weight on your back, you're all alone. You get to Shechem. Shechem means shoulder. You don't have to look over your shoulder anymore. You don't have to carry this by yourself. There's a shoulder to help you along. There's a shoulder to cry on there. You're on your own. You're alone. You had to leave your family. You had to leave your home. You had to leave your town. You don't know if you'll ever be back there. You're all by yourself. You get to Hebron, it means fellowship. I bring you in. You're a part of us. You're not alone out here. You're out there and you're vulnerable and you're exposed and there's weakness out there. You, you, you're a sitting duck, but you come into Bezer. Bezer, Bezer means this, this fortress. There's safety here. 
Or you're out there and you're going and you're kind of in the valleys and the lowlands. You're hiding, you're flying under the radar, staying low, keeping down. Don't want to be noticed, don't want to be seen. But you come into Ramoth and Ramoth means heights. You don't have to cower in the shadows anymore. You're out there, you're on your own. And then you come into to a Golan. Golan means exile. We get it. You're in exile. We are too. You're welcome here. I mean, you see these beautiful cities of refuge that are just opening up and offering this mercy for those who are afraid for their life. And on top of that, these cities of refuge, who are all run by Levites, remember, it's one of their cities, they were given instructions as well of what to do. In Deuteronomy 19.3, it says, build roads to them so that anyone who kills a man may flee there. Like, make it easy. Remove all the barriers. Build some roads so that people can get to these cities of refuge without a lot of effort or difficulty. And there's Jewish writings, not biblical, but Jewish writings that would talk about how these cities of refuge every spring would go out and repair these roads. After the rains, after the floods, after the erosion, they would repair them. These Jewish writings would talk about how these cities of refuge would build bridges over ravines so that it was easy to get to their city. And so that if it was during the season of flooding, they could make it across the ravine without any problem. In these Jewish writings, it talks about how the different interchanges, there were huge signs that say refuge this way, refuge this way, not small, big, so that if someone's running or at night, they could see it's very clearly marked out the way to the refuge city. And in addition to that, unheard of in their culture is that with the refuge cities, the gates were never locked and maybe never even closed so that any time of the day or night, someone could make their way into a refuge city. That, my friends, is the story of the cities of refuge. And aren't you glad you came today? And you're saying, okay, interesting, fascinating, maybe, but I still have time. So let's take it a step further. What is it about these six cities? Interesting that there's six of them. And maybe that's just a math problem. You know, there were 12 tribes. Not every tribe needed a refuge city. Every other tribe, that works out. There were 48 of the cities that were, you know, cities uh, for the Levites. And so there's one out of every eight. So maybe it's a math equation. And maybe it's perfectly spaced. And so maybe it's a geographical uh, situation. But maybe. What if? What if there's something that transcends all of that? Now, I want to be careful on this. But follow me for a minute. There are six refuge cities. And the number six in the Bible always means imperfection, incompletion. Now, it could be a coincidence. It could have been said, no, we only need six. But what if, what if, what if that was by design? What if it was intentional? That yes, these refuge cities, they not only met a very practical need for people in Israel, and yes, they not only revealed the heart of God, and yes, it was part of their judicial system, it was a good system. But what if there were six to say, yes, it's a good system, but it's imperfect and it's incomplete. And what if, what if these six cities pointed to another thing that would be perfect and complete? And what if these six cities of refuge were a shadow, they were real, but they were a shadow of something better to come? And what if, those six refuge cities were a shadow of 
someone to come. And what if the seventh and final city of refuge is Jesus? Ooh, now we're getting cool. Because all of this that was there and all of this in the history that's buried in the Pentateuch and in Joshua, suddenly now maybe it's pointing to something that would be revealed, something that would be fulfilled, something that would be complete, something that would be perfect, someone who would be the ultimate city of refuge. See, the cities of refuge were great unless you were guilty. If you were guilty, you had no hope. You could run to the city of refuge, but as soon as they did the trial, you're out. You're extradited. You're done. That's a problem for those who are guilty. That's a problem for us. I mean, the cities of refuge worked if it was a mistake, if it was inadvertent, if it was an accident. (laughs) But as much as you want to convince yourself of it, you are not a mistaker. You are not an accidenter. You are not an inadvertenter. The Bible says you are a sinner which means, and I'll throw me in here too, we're guilty. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of sin is death. One of these six cities of refuge doesn't help us out because we're guilty. But there's a seventh perfect city of refuge named Jesus. And we can run and we can look over our shoulder and we can live in fear and we can live in guilt and we can run into the welcoming open gates of this city of refuge that is perfect in Christ. And there's a road and there's a bridge made to that city of refuge so it's not difficult. So the barriers have been removed and there's signs that are showing the way and the truth and there's not condemnation, but there's life. See, on the way to that city of refuge, there is a way and there is a truth and there is a life. Mm, Interesting, on the city to the refuge of Jesus, he is the way, he is the truth and he is the life. This is so beautiful when you begin to see that all of this was pointing to a reality that we desperately needed, that it's in Christ. And that's not all. Another detail we overlooked here in Joshua 20, verse 6, the one who runs to the city of refuge, he is to stay in that city until he has stood trial before the assembly and until the death of the high priest who is serving at the time. Then he may go back to his own home in the town from which he fled. So even if he stands trial and they find him, yes, you were innocent, that was a mistake, he's still required to stay in the city of refuge. If he leaves, he's on his own. It says, until the death of the high priest. It implies that the death of the high priest terminates punishment. Come on. Some of you know where I'm going with this one? The death of the high priest terminates punishment. We have a great high priest. In Hebrews chapter seven, it says, now there have been many who have been priests since death prevented them from continuing in office. But because Jesus lives forever, he has a permanent priesthood. Therefore, he is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. Such a high priest meets our need. Jesus is the eternal high priest. He's the forever high priest. He's the great high priest. He intercedes for us. He lives forever. And he is the one who is holy, blameless, pure, and apart from sinners. He was exalted above the heavens. And unlike the other high priest, he does not need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and then for the 
sins of the people. He sacrificed for their sins once for all when he offered himself. Gone, gone, now my sins are dead and gone and I sing hallelujah. That's our great high priest. That's our city of refuge. Could it get any better than that? That he is our way, he is our truth, he is our life, he is our city, he's our high priest. Oh, but wait, it's not over, there's more. In verse 9 of Joshua chapter 20, it says, Any of the Israelites or any alien living among them could flee to these designated cities. Not just the Levites, not just the priestly tribe, not just the Jewish men, any of the Israelites and any of the foreigners, Rahab and her crazy brothers, they could go. Those Gibeonites and all their deception, they could go. Anyone else who's a part of Israel, they could go. Isn't that the good news of the gospel? That anyone, anyone can come to this refuge of Jesus and that the refuge of Jesus is for everyone, including the guilty, especially the guilty. Dare I say, only the guilty. Because we're all guilty. Outside of Jesus, we have no hope. But with Jesus, it's nonstop eternal hope in him. In Hebrews chapter 6, verse 18, it says, God did this so that we who have fled, ooh, sounds like running to a refuge city. We who have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. And Psalm 46 says, God is our refuge and strength and ever-present help in trouble. This is why I've been so excited to preach Joshua chapter 20. Because it's our story. Because we're the guilty ones running, being chased by the accuser with the guilt on our shoulders. And Jesus has made a way and he's pointed the sign and he's offered the life because he's our city of refuge. That's for us. And what if for us collectively as a church, what if we decided since we have been so welcomed into this city of refuge of Jesus, what if we took the posture as a church of being a city of refuge for people who come running people with baggage, people with brokenness, people with guilt, people with a past, people seeking God. What if we became in our words, in our actions, and in our attitudes, a city of refuge, building bridges, removing barriers, pointing to the truth of Jesus, welcoming them in to say this, this is where you walk. What if we as a church like these cities of refuge, we're like a sanctuary, a shoulder to cry on, a fellowship to belong to, a fortress to be safe in, heights to live at amongst exiles who've all been brought into this city, a place where people can come and hear not ollie ollie oxen free, but to hear your high priest has set you free. That is what has happened to us. And that's what God has called us to do. 
in his redemption of bringing the kingdom of God to this fallen world. To live in the city of refuge. To be at home in the presence of Christ. And to live as people who welcome in, who invite in, who share, who point the way, who build bridges, who say this is it. This is the way we have life. Our refuge city is in Jesus, and we can live that way.